Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Max Temkin. Hello sir, how are you? Hey Mike, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So Max, why don't you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you like to be known for? <laughs> sure. Um... Uh, well, I'm a designer from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I am probably best known for some of the games that I've worked on uh, over the years, like Humans vs. Zombies and Cards Against Humanity. Uh, but I would like to be known as someone who buys a lot of uh, domain names. How many domain names do you own? Uh, it's pushing 100. That's a lot. <laughs> Yeah. How many do you use? 99. Uh, well, there a lot of them are just linked to like a single gif. So I have like beesbeesbees.com, ottersottersotters.com, slowloras, slowloras, slowloras.com and then those just all link to animated gifs of animals. Are they fi- Oh, I love the bees one. <laughs> this is what this is a personal favorite of mine. I'll put it in the show notes, which you, people can find at 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 71. Yeah, it's a great one. Are these? Do you have that just for your personal use so you know where to, to, to it, Honestly, to uh, I've learned how to get domain names on my cell phone, and then I go out uh, drinking uh, with friends, and one thing leads to another, and I wake up and I own beesbeesbees.com. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even really know where to go with that, but I, <laughs> I'm happy that it happened. So, Max, what is your background? Um, well, my background, uh, I, I, got a, uh, I went to school and I got a degree in philosophy, uh, and uh, I worked in uh, politics and taught myself design, working on political campaigns. Uh, I, I learned a lot working on the uh, 2008 Obama presidential campaign. And then uh, I kind of fell into making games uh, more recently. Uh, they just, uh, s- some, some hobby projects with uh, friends kind of uh, started to, to take off and developed a, a life of their own on the internet. And now I find myself uh, uh, kind of um, doing a combination of uh, freelance work and game design and uh, I, I guess uh, um, entrepreneurship and, and working on my own uh, company and my own projects. What were you doing for the Obama campaign? Uh, I started as an intern on the campaign, so just uh, getting coffee for people and um, you know scheduling things and that kind of a thing. And uh, I just uh, realized I found myself in a lot of meetings where people were were saying, you know, we we really need a designer to help us make these bumper stickers, or we need someone to figure out how to make a website. And uh, uh, at some point, I just said, you know, I, I think I could probably figure out how to do that stuff. And then um, once I had put myself in a position where I had to learn those things, I. Uh, just went on Google and figured out how to make a website, I guess. <laughs> Only for the president. No no biggie. <laughs> well, they were, I mean, it started off as uh, as just, you know, very, very small projects that, that maybe only a, a small number of people would see. But by the end, I was doing some um, some stuff that was pretty pretty widely seen, uh, for sure. What was that like to to be to be there? I mean, uh, uh, irrespective of how people feel now sure well you know um i all throughout school and and you know still to this day uh i i i'm really interested in politics and and it feels um you know a, a very meaningful and important uh you know kind of a thing to be involved in um but uh it was fun it, you know it's it's fun it's exhausting uh it can be very romantic um you know if you if if it's a good campaign and you really believe in it um, it can be uh, uh, 
kind of depressing uh, because you you really you know it's this incredibly difficult project where you're kind of expected to to give yourself over to it entirely, and it has a definite countdown on it, uh, and it's going to end at at some point or another. And, you know, this thing that's filled your life with purpose for, you know, six, eight, nine months, something like that, uh, you know, it's going to come to an end and then you wake up the next day and you're like, I have no idea what to do. Uh, so, I, you know, it's a, a, a high highs and low lows and uh, there's no money in it. Hmm. <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The, the Obama campaign is an interesting one, I guess, because um, it was a, like a, a monumental thing, you know. First, first, yeah. like black president. That's that was a big deal. Yeah, I, I think there was a um, definitely a, a sense of the importance of what we were doing and and the historical place of it. But also, uh, it's hard to, you know, it's a job. Like you got to wake up and and go there and eat lunch with people, and you know, it, it, you're working in an office with like, you know paper clips and printers and you know network printer problems like it you know it's a it's a weird mix of like feeling like it's the most important place in the world and it just being a, a job where you know someone's got to get lunch for the team or or uh you know stay behind and and clean up the office or or uh you know do those kind of mundane things so uh it was weird but then you know of course you you'd start to get used to it and it would be like a normal job and then you you know find yourself in the office and like Joe Biden would walk in or or some you know movie star would come in or something uh one, uh, one time I uh met uh, Muhammad Ali he just came wow. came through the office for for a for a tour so yeah like you might be changing the world but the fax machine still gets jammed <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah no in, in in 2008 at least it was um a requirement that all the uh, people on the staff had to do a certain number of hours a week in the call center it was really the first uh, as far as i know the first presidential campaign to have a phone number where you could call them um and uh it was just staffed by everyone so you know no matter uh uh, how low or, or how you were, as far as I know, you you had to do a certain number of hours in there, and um, you know it was always it was always very humbling, like going kind of getting you out of your your little bubble and and talking to all of the crazy people uh, who would call in. So, of all of I think of all of the guests I've had on the show, at least in recent memory, I think you are you are the the title winner of person with most ongoing projects. <laughs> and I'm going to try and dive into as many as I can. But like, if you go to your blog, which I think it's is it Max Existentialism, yeah, Existentialism dot com, you'll see a list. Like, and it's just like a most recent projects list, and it's just massive, and not all of them. Like, so you your new pro you have a, a a list called new projects, of which there are maybe about twenty items, just dating back to April two thousand and twelve. So that kind of gives a, a an idea of that. So you are you are an extremely busy guy to the point where, and we'll talk about this later, in the run up to the show this week, you've launched something else. <laughs> we'll come to that one in a bit. But I want to talk about because I I uh, I saw your XOXO talk, which was fantastic. Um, I I really really enjoyed it, and I think it's one that people should check out. Um, and I know it's definitely one of the the talks that was spoken about the most, especially when the videos were released, because it was like this is one you need to see. And um, you spoke about a game, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, called Humans versus Zombies. What is that? 
Yeah, um, so Humans vs. Zombies was, was really my introduction to um, a, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing with my life now, uh, working on games and doing kind of uh, public projects on the internet and uh, giving things away for free. Um, it started as this game of uh, tag. My friends uh, Chris and Brad uh, came up with this game, uh, and it was this, this, this big game of tag they organized my freshman year of college, uh, just, you know, like in the dorms. Uh, so it's like uh, uh, it was played by maybe seventy people, and it went for about a week. And people just uh, it was kind of this uh, this two teams, humans and zombies, and you just sort of like chase each other around. The zombies are trying to tag all the humans. The humans are trying to survive until the end of the week. Uh, and it was this this really kind of fun, uh, like loosely organized thing. Um, and it was it it really like it was the thing that that got me like excited to be uh, at college in a way because uh, I met a lot of my friends playing the game. I kind of it helped me learn my way around campus. Like it just became this this really important thing. Uh, and as the the you know my my time at college went on, the game became more and more popular at our school. And then um, this was around the time when Facebook started to spread outside of the Ivy League. So it, people started sharing the game at other schools. And by the time we graduated, it was being played at maybe five or 600 different colleges and universities around the country. And uh, I very quickly, uh, after I played the first time, I, I jumped into helping organize the game. And uh, me and Chris and Brad and a few of our other friends found ourselves at the center of this big, like, you know, national thing that was, it was like on the Colbert Report and it was uh, being reported in newspapers. Um, and we just, we sort you know, we, we never we never designed it for this or expected this, but we sort of found ourselves in the middle of it, and it was it was really exciting. It was super exhilarating, and uh, we found that just by like putting this thing online for free and opening it up to people and and um, um, helping to sort of uh, cheerlead for it, that it it people uh, took it on on their own and made it something really special at, at all of these different schools. So obviously, this was something that grew from from you know from nowhere and i guess you kind of grew along with it and and you learned a lot of things on the way i'm sure um what would you say that if you look back now was there anything specific that you learned from this experience that helped either form ideas for your later ventures or prepare you for some of the stuff that you did later yeah the thing that that sticks with me the most from it um you know for us it it's the game really started from this like we had a bunch of nerf guns and we wanted to come up with a game to play with them and then we had this like vision of seeing one kid being chased across the campus by 50 kids so it's, it really started as just like hey here's this thing that we're going to do to to have fun and and kind of get out of our our everyday routine um but it we really we very quickly saw how political it became and how uh, how much it meant to people um, and this is something there there's actually like a, a a lot of like interesting kind of um, game philosophy around this idea but uh, the idea of like playing in public and that that's inherently political um, because when you play in public you're showing people like another way to behave and another set of things to care about in their lives that aren't the typical ways that people behave in. So you're showing people a way to act that's not motivated from fear or uh, anger or jealousy or anything like that. It's just this very like inclusive, uh, loving way of interacting with people, um, and you're you're all sort of giving your lives over to these like arbitrary, just sort of socially contingent rules. And uh, for for us that was like incredibly fun, like getting lost in the, the fantasy of this game and just really like letting it take over our lives. But some people found it super threatening. Uh, some people in the school administration, other students, 
Um, so we really found ourselves like in this, in this, uh, having made this like very political thing, uh, and that really that wasn't something we asked for. It was just a, a something that came with the the territory of the game, and that that always stuck with me. That that sort of um, uh, that it was that it was sort of uh, subversive and and political to to play in public and show people a new way to act. So that's like when you create a game of tag, that is not what you expect to happen, right? Yeah, and uh, and certainly like we never thought people would care enough about the game to to try to ban it, or you yeah. know that that other people would you know that there'd be documentaries and fan kind of culture around it, but uh, it just sort of it it just sort of happened on its own. I mean, we we just started to sort of see the power of the thing that this thing that we had made uh, that was originally it was this very kind of uh, flighty thing for us, but uh, it it just took on all this meaning, um, and and that yeah that that always stuck with me. Has the game ever come back into your life in a way that, like, have you ever come across the game or had somebody mention it to you with them not knowing that you were part of its creation? Oh yeah, uh, I mean, I, it's it's a big part. Uh, so it's played now at about uh, seven hundred and fifty colleges and universities. Uh, and we're still very active uh, in organizing the game. Um, we we it's it's largely organized with this uh, software that we made that sort of helps uh, moderators keep track of like who's in the game and who's on which team. Uh, so we maintain that software and work on that. And it's all it's kind of a mostly a nonprofit model, not voluntarily. It's just sort of how it wound up. Um, and uh, yeah, we all the time we 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 you know I'm I'm. Um, visiting uh, a school or or I go to a school and I see people you know running around with like headbands and nerf guns and I and I see the game uh and then all the time I I meet people who they hear that I worked on it and they have all their their great like war stories to tell me <laughs> so um I'm sure that this somehow led into uh cards against humanity which we're going to talk about in just a moment which is maybe the thing that you're most well known for these days um, but before we do that, I just want to take a very quick break to thank one of our sponsors for this week's episode. So that is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio, and they support Command Space, and they're bringing this episode to you. So for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, you want to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TallyHo11. Now, you will have heard me talk in the past about some of the stuff that I love about Squarespace, like their fantastic templates, the fact that they're always adding new features, that they're always ensuring that they have fantastic support and making it better all the time, 24 hours, 7 day a week, and they're increasing the team and everything that they have there to the point where they're now at 70 employees that work for Squarespace that are dedicated to support. But I want to talk a little bit today about Squarespace's new applications that they've been working on for uh, iOS, and they'll be later coming to uh, Android too, but they've got two new apps. They have one called Blog and one called Metrics. So the Squarespace Blog application um, is a brand new, very beautiful app that lets you obviously... Uh, create drafts and posts and schedule your posts, review posts that are going on to your blogs there. Um, you can monitor and manage comments as well. And it's fully integrated with their layout engine page building system. So this allows you to really easily format text on Markdown. And something that I think is really cool is you can insert images and you can drag them around in your post which on the phone or on your iPad. And then that will reflect on your
your site to. And I think that's really cool, and that allows you to do that very simply. And they also have their new a new app called Squarespace Metrics too, which is a really easy way to view not just your website analytics like page views, unique visitors. Um, they show you projections and charts for your websites too, but you can also track your social accounts like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can see the followers you have there. So it's just a way at a glance to sort of see what your presences are online. So this is just some of the cool features that are at Squarespace. No matter what type of website you're trying to build, they've got the tools to help you. Um, I redesigned my own blog, MikeHurley.net, um, last weekend. It was very easy. I chose a new template, chose some new fonts, and I just found it a very simple procedure. I didn't need to clear a week to sit down and do it. I just did it in like half an hour. So I want you to go and sign up for a Squarespace account yourself and try out some of their awesome features. So go to squarespace.com. So you can sign up for a free trial. You don't need any credit card to do this. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure that you use the offer code TALLYHO11 to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Command Space. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month. Thank you so much to Squarespace for the support of the show, and they give you everything that you need to create an exceptional website. So what is the origin story of Cards Against Humanity? Where did this idea come from? So Cards started uh, with a, a different group of friends from Humans vs. Zombies. This uh, started as a project with like my, my oldest uh, childhood friends. Uh, and we just always, we were always kind of like the, the, the nerd uh, uh, underclass in our uh, high school. And we always, whenever there would be, you know, a, a, uh, any sort of holiday, like uh, New Year's or, um, you know, Thanksgiving or anything like that, like we'd always wind up getting together in, in someone's like parents' basement. And we, we just have a long history of like making our own uh, activities and making our own games. Uh, and cards really came out of that. It was sort of this like long iterative process of we, we started with something much more complicated and then started uh, stripping it down and um, taking pieces away until all we had left was this really simple sort of like fill in the blank format. And uh, around the time that I graduated college, uh, this was when Humans vs. Zombies had really begun to take off. And I, I, I think I was probably the one who, who pushed the group in the direction of, like, you know, we should really post this online and uh, see what happens. Uh, so we made a little webzine. We bought CardsAgainstHumanity.com. And we, um, actually, I think back then it was, we were calling it Cardenfreud, which is a terrible name. <laughs> so we bought uh, Cardenfreud.com. And we uh, uh, released, you know, we just like posted the game as a PDF and, and shared it on, uh, you know, um, um, like something awful and Metafilter and a few of our, our favorite sites like that. And it, it started to gain a little bit of traction. Uh, and then from there we did a, 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 you know, once we sort of saw that there was a little bit of interest and, and people were, were talking about the game, we started a Kickstarter project and then uh, that paid for our first printing and uh, we we got a few extra sets. We were able to afford a few extra sets with that first printing, and that funded our second printing, which funded our third printing, and uh, now it's turned into uh, quite a, a successful uh, little company. So, why did you choose Kickstarter for for Cards Against Humanity? Well, uh, that came out of um, uh, well, it actually goes back to the Obama campaign. Uh, the the uh, design director on the 2008 campaign is this guy uh, Scott Thomas. Uh, he's my my favorite designer. Um, and he, after the 2008 Obama campaign, he wrote this book called Designing Obama that was sort of uh, um, some stories from the campaign and some writing about his design choices and, and actually like the full um, extended uh, Obama style guide and then like a great encyclopedia of some of the uh, sort of folk art that had sprung up around the campaign. Uh, and he funded this whole project through Kickstarter, which at the time was, was very new and, and young. Uh, and it, it was uh, it was one of the first big Kickstarter projects. Um, I, I remember I was 
incredibly impressed with how much money he raised. And then he was able to like really do an incredible job like designing this book. Like, um, you know, we had the, the deep navy uh, Obama blue was always very difficult color for us to match. And I, when he, when he went to uh, print the book, he actually was able to like fly to Japan and look at fabric swatches to pick the right hmm. blue color for the binding. And I remember thinking like, this is really special to this platform. Like no publisher would have ever let him do that. Uh, or cared that much about what the book looked like. Uh, so when it came time to do cards, where it was like a, a a a perfect Kickstarter scenario of you know we've got this idea and there seems to be some interest in it, but it's too dumb for us to like take a big risk on, take a loan or something for, and we can't afford to print it on our own. Uh, I just saw the creative freedom that Kickstarter uh, afforded Scott and other people, and it just looked uh, perfect for us. What were your expectations when you launched it? Well, we we asked for. If I remember correctly, we asked for two thousand dollars on Kickstarter, and coming from like politics, you never say an amount of money that you need unless you're kind of already sure where it's going to come from because you don't want to like get caught with your pants down. Mm. Uh, so I remember when we came up with that number that we needed two thousand dollars. I was like, I mean, I was, I was like, oh, this is impossible. Like, we're never going to get two thousand dollars. We don't, you know, we don't know any collectively. All of us together don't know enough people to put two thousand dollars into this project. It just seemed impossible to us, uh, and uh, it was, uh, it did really well. Uh, it w- raised, uh, I think, a little over uh, fifteen thousand dollars. So it, it just totally blew away our expectations. And then, uh, you know, like I said, like we were afforded um, a tremendous amount of creative liberty to to write whatever we wanted, to design the box however we wanted. You know, there was no publisher or distributor to to tell us what we could and couldn't do. Uh, you know, we didn't have any editors um, breathing down our necks or anything. And it was just a, an incredibly positive experience. And uh, I think also probably led to a really good and healthy relationship with our fans. $15,000 right now on a Kickstarter doesn't sound much it was a lot in 2011 it was it was it was one of the highest funded games on kickstarter um yeah it was crazy i mean at the time that was a big number and it is crazy to look now and and see that you know i, I would say like you know an, an average game can easily pull in like like 20 30 40 thousand now yeah you can't move for million dollar kickstarts these days yeah <laughs> they're everywhere when you were creating cards did you ever worry that there would be a backlash over the content because it is more sort of adult orientated than than some other card, well, pretty much most card games. Yeah, to, um, you know, we, I, I, that was certainly a concern. Um, we, it was somewhat the risk there was somewhat mitigated by the fact that we branded it like very obviously as, uh, you know, we call it a party game for horrible people, and also that it's not available in retail. Like you really have to seek it out. You have to go to our website to buy it. It's it's still not available in retail anywhere. Um, but you know, I think the bigger concern was that no, that the humor was, because um, you know, the the truth is, like the humor in cards, it you know sometimes it's it's shocking or or offensive, but it's more it's just weird. Uh, so I think the real concern was just that it was too out there that people wouldn't connect with it, that they wouldn't get our sense of humor, that that in a way like we would that we or our personalities would be too strange for people, and uh, that's that's really been the most like satisfying part of it is is seeing that like that this that our kind of like weird geeky sense of humor has has connected with people. Uh, that's that's been really fun. Hmm. So what like I mean. It's had great success. I mean, you you frequently top the charts at Amazon. Why do you think the game has maintained the popularity that it has? Um, I wish I I wish I knew. I mean, I think we've 
um, you know, I talked about this a little bit in, in my XOXO talk. I think we've made some good decisions over the years. Uh, even, you know, at, at certain times we didn't really know what we were doing. But, um, you know, I, we released the game under a Creative Commons license, which has let people make all kinds of music and videos and um, remixes and art projects. Uh, so all that stuff has contributed to the popularity of the game uh, tremendously. Uh, and also, it's just sort of an, an old, you know, there's something nice about the the way that the game works. It's sort of like, viral but in a really like old-fashioned analog sense uh, because you can't play the game alone you you want to play with friends you, you want to get a group of 10 people together to play so in a sense like it, it just has that viral nature like baked right into it people take it to a party they play with a dozen friends a few of those people are gonna uh, you know get a copy you know uh, buy it and play with their friends and then finally, uh, we this was a lesson I, I learned from Humans vs. Zombies. Uh, we recognized the importance of making the game available for free. Uh, and to this, you know, um, from the beginning, it was just a free, you know, you were, you were able to just download the game as like a free PDF and print it on your home printer. And to this day, we offer that option on the website. In the, in going into the long term, into the future, do you have plans for, for cards? Yeah, um... You know, we creatively, like it's still really fun for us to get to get together and write the game. That's probably, I mean, that that's actually like one of the greatest pleasures of the whole project, and and uh, one of the things we enjoy the most about its success is that, uh, you know, we all grew up together, but we, now we live all over the country, so it gives us this amazing excuse to um, uh, get have. You know, a couple times a year, where we all get together in person and and take a you know a couple days and and just write a bunch of comedy and uh, also we can afford to do it you know it's like a, it's a company trip so um you know that's that's something that wouldn't otherwise be available to us um and then uh so yeah we're gonna you know obviously continue writing continue making new expansions uh and then um you know i think what we're most interested in sort of like big picture is we as, as sort of like an independent uh, company and especially like an independent uh um uh company that makes like a physical product and and does like physical product design and, and fulfillment, we've run into all of these logistical issues as we've grown and, and we've had all these growing pains and we're, we're definitely interested in, you know, trying to build tools to make our life easier uh, and then make those tools available to other creative people. Um, so we're looking at things like, uh, you know, online sales and, and fulfillment and sort of like gritty behind the scenes stuff that, that people don't always think about but there doesn't seem to be like a, a great solution for. So I guess talking about um, helping others, what is tabletop deathmatch? Yeah, um, well, this is something that's that's really uh, um, been very important to us at Cards is this idea of like, you know, it's been it's been a real struggle for us. Um, the the board game industry is not as um, you know it hasn't really been hit by like you know video games have been have been really changed over the last few years by new distribution models that have like blown the industry wide open. So if you make independent video games, you can, you don't need a publisher anymore. You can just publish your own game. There's there's many different ways to get it directly to your fans and to communicate with them. Uh, board games are still, you know, left in like the the 20th century. Like it's very much like retail and distributors and publishers and all of this big money and these big companies. And you know, I we have a lot of friends who have made very successful games and they don't make enough money off of their games to to live off of them. So there just isn't like there isn't a lot of knowledge out there about how to go independent. Uh, and there there isn't um there, you know it's it's not really like something that's valued in the world of board games. So tabletop deathmatch is this idea we came up with to sort of 
uh, bring um, you know our values of, of independence and self-publishing to the board game uh, world. Uh, so this is something we did at Gen Con, which is like the biggest board game uh, convention in the U.S. Uh, we basically uh, assembled um, a panel of all of these uh, amazing game designers and, and publishers, and uh, we said uh, to the public, you know, if you submit your unpublished board game prototype to us, we'll take a look at it. We'll show it to our panel of judges. Uh, we'll pick one game out of uh, all the ones that are sent, and we'll give you the money to do a first printing, and then we'll bring it to Gen Con next year. So it basically uh, adds just one more, you know, sort of self-published game to the to the the offerings at Gen Con. And the idea is we just do this year after year, and it sort of slowly builds up this culture of, of independence and self-publishing. Uh, and we thought maybe we'd get like a couple dozen submissions to the contest, um, but it totally blew up. I think we wound up getting like like something like 500 games submitted to us, maybe maybe more, I can't remember. Um, but it was enough. We, there was enough interest in it for us to realize that we... we Needed to do even more to get the uh, the message out about this thing, so we uh, are actually uh, filmed the whole deathmatch uh, process uh, as kind of like a documentary series, and it'll be out uh, I think early next year. Um, so people will be able to sort of get to see some of the final games and meet the people who design these games and learn about uh, how it works to to publish a game and and navigate that whole world of self publishing. And hopefully it'll be kind of educational and, and interesting, and uh, it'll it'll help out some of those independent designers who submitted games to the contest. What does success look like for for tabletop deathmatch? Is it just taking the the winner to to Gen Con, or is it like do you want the game to be a massive success or drawing attention to the project so you can continue to do it? Like what what is the goal for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess uh, success. Um, I mean, obviously it it it. But to answer part of your question, it benefits Cards Against Humanity in the sense of um uh it it just. You know, we 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 benefit we benefit anytime that the whole category of independent games are elevated. So, if independent games are taken more seriously at conventions like Gen Con and in the industry of of gaming, like it just it elevates our game and it and it makes us um, it puts us in a, in a stronger position. So, we we care about the whole genre of independent games. Uh, success for the contest, I guess, if it if it inspires. If it gives people who watch the documentary the feeling that they can take an idea for a game and make a paper prototype and put it online and share it with people and you know use tools like Kickstarter to turn that into a, a product and you know share something uh, delightful with people, that's a success. If it gives people that, that feeling of being able to participate in the creation of games, that would be successful. I feel like the uh, documentary is going to be one of those like tear jerky ones like indie game <laughs> i i uh i've seen some of the episodes uh and it's definitely are gonna gonna run the gamut i mean there are some pretty um so there were some pretty amazing people who were part of it and we got some awesome interviews but then there's also uh, my, one of my favorite games uh that was submitted was a game called fart party so i you know i don't yeah. know how much of a, of a tear jerker that one will be but uh actually a, a, a wonderful game so i want to take uh, just one more quick break but there's still got so much more <laughs> there's so much more um, sure so so uh i want to just take a quick moment to thank our friends over at shutterstock.com for supporting this episode too this is where you are going to find over 28 million images stock photos vectors illustrations and over 1 million video clips you can start searching over at shutterstock and you're going to find the perfect image for your website ad publication or just about any other creative project 
Shutterstock.com gives you a global image collection to find media from across the world to help suit whatever it is that you're working on. You can choose between image packs, monthly subscription packages, or you can just buy one image at a time if that's what you need. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you're guaranteed to find something new since they add over 20,000 images every single day and 12,000 videos every single week. And it's much more affordable than you think. They don't charge you multiple times to download different resolutions of the file. If you need a, a, a file in a certain resolution now and a higher resolution later, you just go back, you log in, and you download it, which is just how it should be. It's simple. They make it easy. And you, while you're searching around, they have this really cool feature that they call light boxes. So as you're searching and looking for pictures um, maybe of games, maybe you're looking for pictures of zombies, if that's the type of thing that you want to look for, you can add them um, to a light box. So you can find all of your favorite ones and you can review them later. They also have an iPad app that you can do this with too. They have enhanced license access if you need it. They have 24-hour customer support and dedicated account reps, which you can take advantage of. But as well as images and videos, they have a huge library of vectors, icons, and infographic templates as well. I want you to go to Shutterstock.com. This is where you're going to be able to sign up for a free browsing account. No credit card needed to do this. And when you find the images you like and decide to purchase, don't forget to use the code CMD1113. So that's CMD1113. It's going to get you 25% off any package over at Shutterstock.com. Thank you so much to Shutterstock for their support of the show. What is PodcastThing.com? Uh, so podcast thing is uh, kind of a, a, a side project, uh, and that came out of, I just, uh, I, I noticed that like every couple of weeks on Twitter, I would have some group of friends start the same version of this conversation where someone would go, hey, does anyone listen to any good podcasts? And then everyone would sort of chime in and they would say like the same three podcasts, you know, This American Life, like Radio Lab, uh, you know, the, the talk show, like kind of the, the big ones that everybody knows about. Uh, and I, you know, I love podcasting. I think, um, you know, I actually think uh, uh, Marco uh, Arment's uh, talk at uh, uh, at XOXO, he really touched on on why podcasting is such a cool medium. Yep. Um, just the idea that it's uh, it's it's so independent, like it's so distributed. Nobody owns the platform. There's all this like wild experimentation in the medium. Like it's it's just such a, an exciting time for it right now. Uh, and it's sort of like. Uh, I don't know when I would see people like having, you know, that th this was the discovery mechanism for podcasts of people just like asking on Twitter and then getting kind of mediocre feedback. Like it was always sort of bugged me. Um, so I just sort of uh, made a tweet and I was like, hey, I, you know, I, I should make, you know, it would be really fun to make like a directory of, uh, of uh, podcasts. Um, and I think I even said, uh, my friend Daniel Bogan has this website called uh, The Setup, where he sort of interviews people about what technology they use. And I think I even said, like, it should work kind of like The Setup. And uh, my friend uh, Veronica Corzo Ducart, um, who's a, an amazing designer and printmaker here in Chicago, a reply and teacher, uh, she replied back to me and was like, yeah, I would love to work on that. I, I love listening to podcasts, and it's hard to discover new ones. So we, we like, got together in the office and um, you know opened up a beer and came up with sort of like wireframe the site and built the first prototype and got it done in one night and posted online and uh, it's basically uh, it's a it's sort of a hybrid model of um, uh, editorial suggestions so it's stuff that me and Veronica listen to and, and vouch for and, and think is good and 
than uh, uh, interviews with interesting people. Um, so we basically just, uh, anyone uh, who we like um, their writing or their work, we'll just email them uh, the short four-question interview, and we sort of ask, like, what podcast do you listen to? Uh, um, how do you listen to podcasts? Things like that. And uh, we probably have, like, uh, a couple dozen uh, interviews up on the site. So it's kind of a good mix of, like... Um, discovery from all these I- interesting people and then a more um uh editorial selection from uh from me and Veronica so it seems to be it seems to be working i i still wish there was something um with a, a bigger community behind it but uh this is at least our our stab at the problem whatever you do don't make a social network and then pivot out <laughs> yeah because that was uh for people that don't get the joke odio which was what twitter was born out of was a directory i mean the difference was it was where people listed their shows i guess yeah and and you know the thing like there's there's i'm sure there's there's other stuff out that's that's come out to replace audio but uh and certainly like you know itunes is is the main discovery uh, mechanism for the for podcasts but uh i think the problem is just like information overload like there are just so many podcasts out there and most of them aren't very good um, so it's it's really tough to strike a balance between like you know you want you want that editorial touch like you want someone like you know the the wire cutter blog you want someone to come in who's an expert and tell you here's the best things to listen to, but there's also always the risk of you know if you have an an expert telling you what to listen to that you're going to miss all of the stuff on the fringes. So like yep. you know I think that I'm pretty well educated about like what's going on in, in podcasts and I think I have pretty good taste in this. But until we started the interviews, I didn't know Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what it, what the deal was with it. I didn't know how amazing it was. So, um, you know, if this had just been me telling people what podcast to listen to, like I would have never uh, that thing would have never surfaced for me, and I would have never been able to recommend it. So, uh, bringing in like outside voices and all kinds of different people is also really crucial. Um, so you get that that mix of um, editorial and uh, you know curation and also uh, a chance for for new ideas to get in. One of the things that I like about about the site. Um, is that for for most of the shows, it's it has a where to start, because obviously coming in on a show, sometimes if it's like just a weekly show with like similar guests and stuff, there will be themes and sort of in jokes that run through. So sometimes it can help to go back to a certain point to listen. Um, oh yeah, that that that, that came out of. Uh, do you know Merlin Mann's a podcast, uh, Roderick on the Line? Of course, um, yes. So yes. like that came out of like I was like, well. I love this podcast, but how do I recommend someone listen to it? Because they're going to pick it up and listen to, you know, episode, you know, whatever the most recent one is, episode 50 or something, and they're going to be totally lost. Like, that's really a podcast that, that benefits from from starting pretty early on and being on the inside of all of the, the inside jokes. Yeah, you have to start at the first episode with Roderick on the line, which is, I think, what you suggested. Yeah. Because otherwise, you won't get as much out of it. Like, it's, it's an excellent, excellent show. Totally. So, what do you love about podcasts? Uh, well, I think, uh, like I said, I think you know, I, I think Marco um, did a really nice job uh, talking about um, why podcasting is so cool. But uh, you know, there, for me, it's very utilitarian. Like podcasts, you, can, I, I, I'm able to listen to podcasts at times in my life when I'm not able to consume any other media. So, while I'm while I'm walking, while I'm doing chores around the house, while I'm in the shower, you know, I can't I can't be on Twitter. I can't watch TV. Um, you know, I certainly I don't want to have a moment of self-reflection. So uh, podcasts are pretty much uh, all that's left. I completely agree with you. I, I go one step. Like it's my favorite form of entertainment. Um, I would listen to a podcast over watching like a movie. 
which I guess is kind of how it should be with me, considering I make them. But um, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I just I, love I, it. I certainly, uh, I, I certainly spend a, a good amount of my day listening to a podcast. Uh, you know, listening to, to different podcasts. Like it's, it, it's also like I don't know. It's just uh, there's something about the the format of of especially like a, a conversational, um, you know, um, um, podcast like this one where um, you're truly really introduced to like new ways of of looking at problems and new ways of thinking about things that that you know you would never come up with in just your own sort of circle of friends. As you mentioned earlier, there are lots of bad podcasts, which is which is unfortunately true. Um, as a listener, what do you think makes a good show? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I uh, uh, I appreciate a good um, a good production value uh, in general. Um, so I like I, I you know that's often like inspires confidence that what's happening in the rest of the show is going to be really thoughtful. Um, I think for I think in general I, I look for a podcast that has like a reason to exist. So in general I'm actually very skeptical of podcasts like Command Space because it can it can often just be like two people just sitting around talking for no reason and it, it can be really aimless or you know unguided. Um, I, I don't think that's the case with Command Space, but I, I think that's I think you have a, a strong touch as an interviewer and and you you pick the people very carefully to come on the show, but I think that's a, a, a dangerous path so, you know, for a, a podcast to go on is, is just sort of talking for no reason. So I always like something with like a, um, a, a, reason, you know, a format to it or a reason, a reason for, for being. Um, so I think uh, uh, I, I, like, I like podcasts that, that are timely, that talk about like what happened you know, this week in news. Um, you know, I, I would say for me, like my, my gold standard of podcasts is uh, John Syracuse's podcast on, on 5 by 5 that is uh, sadly ended but uh, hypercritical. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a podcast where every week him and Dan Benjamin would sort of pick one topic in, in the world of technology and just really like strip it down to its bones. Like, I mean, they would just come at it from every angle and take it apart and uh, it, was really, it was really fun to hear uh, Syracuse just like kind of turn his intellect on, on all of these different topics on, in, uh, you know, internet, on the internet and, and technology and gaming and all kinds of different stuff and they did, they did a whole episode where he, he talked about the design of toasters and uh, it sounds really dumb but it was one of the most like, fascinating things I, I ever heard so I, I, I always loved that podcast because it had this like, very clear reason for being like you knew you were going to turn it on every week and you knew what you were going to get I maintain that Hypercritical is the is the best podcast ever made. I, I think it, I think it might have been, and and, to, and as sad as I am that it's not around anymore, I, I do think it. I think it helps that he that he walked away from it. I think that actually helps preserve it, yes. its integrity because I think you'd be hard pressed to find a bad episode of that show. I don't think such a thing exists, and and it holds up ridiculously well. I um, I'm about halfway through, but. After the show ended, I started listening back again, and when I when I have nothing else to listen to in my queue, I listen to an episode of Hypercritical, and just listening to them discuss their predictions for WWDC 2011, the way that John would frame a discussion, it doesn't matter that it's old because he he wouldn't really give his opinion so much on the news, but the effects that those things would have. And and that's what makes the show still incredibly good, even though you can you can laugh and smile about the things that they get right and wrong, um, because obviously you know, they make predictions or whatever. But this the way that he would talk about things and would analyze things, you can still actually get 
use out of episodes that are two, three years old. Yeah, you're, I, I think that's totally right. Because like the fun of it is not... Um, it's not necessarily like... You know, for something like WWDC predictions, it's not what he's talking about. It's the way that he sort of like just trains his mind on it and and tears it apart. Like that's so instructive. Like you know, you you want to. Uh, it's like a pattern that that I wish I could learn and, and apply to everything in my life. Like it's it's just so fun hearing him think through those those kind of problems. So I want to talk about um, an, another project. Um, one of the most recent projects that you've worked on, uh, of which I can't pronounce the full URL <laughs> on the show. Um, it's Holiday Bald something. Let's say BS. We'll go holidaybs.com. Uh, People can find a link in the show notes if they need to. What is this? And, and why this well, name? <laughs> <laughs> so this is... Um this is the second of our uh, of our sort of holiday promotions for Cards Against Humanity. Um, so, you know, last year we found ourselves in this position. We we started thinking about what you know um, what we were going to do for the holidays. It was like our first big like holiday sales season or whatever, uh, and we we started to realize like you know we're we're we have this successful game, but we're still a very small independent company. We don't ever spend any money on advertising or anything like that. Uh, so we realized, like, we started to get this feeling of, like, it's going to be very hard for us to get attention during the holiday season. You know, you're going to have all of these massive companies spending millions of dollars on marketing and advertising, and we're just going to get totally lost in the noise. Like, people are going to forget that we even exist when they go to buy gifts or think about uh, what to, you know, what games to play over the holidays or something like that. So uh, last year we came up with this idea of doing, like, a little um, mini expansion pack, so like a 30-card expansion pack about the holidays. And it was a, you know, a physical pack, uh, and we offered it as a pay-what-you-want product. So you could pay any amount of money, including $0, and we'd mail it to you. Uh, it was extremely successful. Um, we uh, got written up in Boing Boing and Wired, and it was on the front page of Reddit and Hacker News. Uh, it, was, it was really fun, and it was kind of a, a good mix of like technology and, and kind of an old-fashioned thing of sending people this game in the mail. Uh, and uh, we wound up, um, even though it was available for people to get for free and we would lose money on the postage, obviously, uh, we wound up making about $70,000 in profit off of that, and we donated all of that profit to the uh, Wikimedia Foundation, and we got a nice, uh, a nice uh, um, uh, uh, reception from them uh, for doing that, and people were really happy with, uh, with how, we, how we handled that and what we did with the money and everything. So uh, this year, it was, like, it was just a, a no-brainer that we had to do something really special for the holidays, so we came up with this idea of, like, uh, we call it Cards Against Humanity's 12 Days of Holiday BS, uh, and the idea is you give us uh, $12, and then we'll send you 12 mystery gifts in the mail over 12 days. Uh, so we opened that up to 100,000 people, uh, which I, I was uh, very, very worried about. I didn't think that there were 100,000 people on the planet who would give us $12 for like, you know, some, uh, something where we weren't even telling them what it was uh, in exchange, but uh, did, did remarkably well. It sold out in about uh, six hours. And uh, now we, uh, we get to send uh, 1.2 million pieces of mail out to people uh, starting in December uh, over 12 days. I'm going to come back to 1.2 million because <laughs> that's that's an interesting number. Um, but you mentioned about the paying, uh, paying what you think this is worth type type thing. Now, I came into contact with you guys with this at XOXO. 
So I walk into XOXO and they, they have like a thing that they call the unmarket, which is like the downstairs area and the upstairs is where the conferences are. And I knew that Cards Against Humanity was going to be there and I was looking forward to it because I didn't own the game because up until that point it wasn't available in the UK. It is now. It was like that week. But I was like, considering I'm going to be there, I will buy buy it. I figure you'll probably earn the most out of it from my money that I give you there because, you know, I'm sure there's, there's well, I'd like I'd hope that there maybe there were less overheads. I don't know. Um, but I thought I would do, I would buy it while I'm there. So I walk in and I'm looking around for the Cards Against Humanity table and I see it. It's, it's the easy one to spot because everything's black. So I walk over and I see a big stack of the game, like a boxes of the game, an iPad and a pile of cash. And there's nobody there. And with the idea being, you can choose to pay in two methods. You can either pay with on your like with your card with a square register on the iPad, or you can pay in cash and just take change from the big stack of money. And there was just a sign that just said, "Please don't take our iPad." I have a picture <laughs> of this. I will put it in the show notes. That was just incredible. I I loved it. So I just wanted to mention that, that I'd seen that because it was awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that was definitely inspired by the uh, the success of the the pay what you want uh, holiday pack, and uh, it was also inspired by the fact that I was uh, actually the only person from Cards who was able to make it to XOXO, and there was no chance that I was going to miss like one minute of the conference to sit at that table and sell games. So it was a very pragmatic uh, solution for me. Did you did you lose anything? I I don't know. I no. I think that I I actually haven't. Uh, I. I I keep putting this off, but I need to do like a blog post and like actually like go through the bank records and and show how much like how how that whole pr- that thing did at XOXO. But I what I think that I saw when I was like depositing all the cash is that we wound up with too much money. Right. Okay. That there was more money than there should have been, so people were overpaying. Yeah, I think I can't remember how much I paid. Um, was there a recommended? Yes, is pay what yeah, you we want. Just, well, we we said uh, we said pay what you want, but the like MSRP is twenty five dollars, and the expansions are ten. So like you know we were expecting like at the end there'd be like I don't know eight hundred bucks or something, and I and I remember when I went to deposit it there was there was like way more than that. So I don't know how that worked out. Yeah, I I don't know how much I paid, but I'm sure that I paid more. I, it's a weird thing <laughs> that you just do. I, I don't know why you just like oh, this is fun. I'll give him more money. <laughs> <laughs> So, 1.2 million. How do you fulfill 1.2 million pieces of mail? How do you do that? Uh, well, I mean, we, we, it's, uh, it's something that we've learned to do like over a couple of years of working on the game. I mean, certainly we, we wouldn't have been able to do this um, you know, a couple, you know, e- even a year ago. Uh, but we just uh, we have a, a network of mailing houses that we've worked with all around the country, and uh, we have very very careful coordination with them. Uh, it helps that there's not a lot of middlemen that we that we do most of the work ourselves, um, you know, directly with the printers and the mailing houses. So stuff doesn't get lost in the shuffle, and and we have very clear lines of communication. And uh, it's just very carefully coordinated. We need to make sure that everything is in the right place at the right time. So we need, you know, everything is custom too. It's all custom envelopes. All the gifts are are totally custom made, uh, custom packaging for everything, um, and it's all stuff that's not available anywhere else. So it's all unique things that were made uh, just for the the twelve days uh, promotion. And uh, it's just been, you know, I, I've probably been working on this for about six months, I would say, uh, just to t- try to get get this all in line. Um, 
So yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been a lot of uh, just a lot of you know it's like like anything else. It's just careful planning and a lot of hard work and a lot of you know phone calls with with vendors and stuff and making sure that uh, everything is ready to go. That kind of answers um, in a way as much as I thought I would get for the next question, which my buddy Matt wanted me to ask you, which was what can people expect to see? So that's kind of it, right? Unique things. Yeah, it's all uh, well. To, um, so I guess some people, a lot of people assumed um, at the outset that we were, that these would be digital goods, that we'd be like emailing people the 12 gifts, and that's not the case. They're all physical goods that will come in the mail, uh, and they're all unique. They're all custom new things that you can't get anywhere else that we made just for this, and uh, I, I don't want to go into any uh, specifics because uh, they, they won't go out for a few more weeks, but I, I think they're really cool. Like It's all stuff that, that we, you know, we don't, we don't want to send anyone like anything disposable or anything that's garbage, so it's a, we really tried to come up with stuff that we would that we we enjoy having and that we like and that we're we're happy to have in our lives like it you know it, it's it's not our style to send someone uh junk so uh i think people are going to be pleasantly surprised uh by by how cool the stuff is that we're sending out and whilst i understand i would like to share my upset that i live in the uk Ah, uh, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I we, understand uh, it makes it would. I, I mean, there's, there's just no. Difficult. So the, the the problem is, um, well, obviously the cost of postage, but also just the time of like if we ha- if these things have to go through uh, customs like overseas, like they'll just never get there in the in the proper sequence of twelve days. Like they'll come out of order and they'll they'll timing will be all crazy. So we just unless we mailed them from within the UK, it just wouldn't have been possible. And then we just didn't have enough time to set up like a, a mailing house and, and get everything over to the UK to, to do distribution there. But we're we're working on it. And also if uh customs don't like it, I could end up paying like another four hundred dollars or something. <laughs> to that's get that's each right one of actually those items. yeah I mean, there can be there can be crazy fees on that stuff. Yeah. I've I've paid more quite frequently actually for items that I've had come in. I tend to pay twice the value of the item just to get it out of customs on top of. So like say I bought like a t-shirt. Like I have a t-shirt for a show that I listen to, The Incomparable. I bought one of their t-shirts and it cost me like $15 or whatever and it was like $35 charged from customs. Yeah, and that like I give the incomparable thirty bucks for a T-shirt, but it kills me to like you know that that people would like pay customs for you know and 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 not someone they like for something like that. But uh, the and you know the the other piece actually that that just occurred to me is like you know we for all, a lot of this stuff like you know because really what we're doing is is writing. I mean it's all like kind of comedy writing. It takes a lot of localization. Like it's it's really you know we, we don't want to just sell like a bunch of like American pop culture in the UK. Like we we, we would really want to like spend our time to make sure that all of the pop culture is kind of appropriately translated and, and you know all of the spelling is updated to you know English spelling and everything so we, we take a lot of pride in, in making sure that everything is just right with that kind of stuff and um, it, it, you know we, we wouldn't have been comfortable just sending like the US version of everything over to, to people in another country that actually kind of leads in um, to another question that I have which is around the way that you market products um, it's very very unique and you have a, a style, and I know that was one of the things that I kept seeing people talk about um, when you when you launched Holiday BS was about the way that you market your products and how fun that is. Um, is this a specific choice that you made, or is it just the way that you communic- would like to communicate? 
Let's, uh, I guess, um, uh, to some extent, it's something I learned from working on political campaigns. Um, you know, people on political campaigns sending good emails that convert well to donations, that's the lifeblood of a campaign. Um, and especially like on the Obama campaign, a lot of technology was actually created to measure emails and, and, and learn how to write better emails and design better emails. So I, I benefited a lot from, from knowledge about that. Uh, and the main things that, that I learned are, you know, obviously um, keep it simple and, and cut every possible thing that can be cut. Uh, talk to people like human beings. Don't use a lot of jargon or make it sound like a press release. Um, you need a, a great headline. Uh, you know, emails should be really simple. They shouldn't be over-designed. Uh, and then every headline should sort of make a promise that's fulfilled by the email. And anytime someone opens an email from you, they should be... Uh, rewarded in some way so they should either get a free thing or they should it should be funny like they should get something for giving you their time and, and attention so it's you know when anytime we say anything for cards through email or twitter or anything like that or, or post on our blog like it's never light like we never do it just to say something like it's always carefully considered and we want to make sure that if, if people are giving us the gift of their time and attention that we're rewarding them with something that's worthy of that not you know not wasteful from a global marketing background yes <laughs> That's it, great, it, and it's I, awesome I will say that it helps. It. it helps not to have a client too, because yeah. uh, good luck uh, selling that idea to a client. I was exactly. never able to figure that out, but it's nice. You know, this is the best thing of like being independent. Is like we we as designers and writers, we we know these things, and mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a it's it's a very validating uh, thing to to get to do the kind of marketing that you want for your own product and and have it be successful. Exactly, like anybody that's that has been in and around this stuff for long enough knows that's what you should do, but try and convince the stakeholder. That's the, the problem. Right. Well, we're not paying for all this white space. Why is this here? <laughs> exactly. So the last, the last one of your, just the small selection of products and projects that, that I mentioned today is simply because you're talking about it this week, and it's a product called Small CMS, which there isn't a lot of information about it right now, um, which I'm sure is, is for a reason. But what, what is uh, the Small CMS? Uh, small CMS came out of this this frustration I have uh, doing a, a design. Uh, so you know, my I'm sort of self taught. So like, I have this really weird like I've cobbled together this really weird skill set of like I can you know I think like a lot of designers like I can you know I'm, I'm, my main tool is Photoshop and I can sort of like lay out a website really nicely in Photoshop and then I can build that website into uh, a really nice like site with HTML and CSS. And I can use like an FTP client, and I can put it on a server, and I can launch a website. Uh, and that is great if I'm the only contributor to a project, but it falls apart as soon as like I have a client who needs to update content on the site, or if I have a collaborator. So, you know, an example would be podcast thing. For example, you know, I was able to. I originally made podcast thing as just like an HTML and CSS website, and then there are other contributors to the project, uh, obviously, and people who help me keep it updated. But uh, you know, they they don't know how to like FTP into a site and use code and like edit the HTML like that's that's outside of their comfort level so I was the one, I was the only one I would put myself in a position where I was the only one who was able to uh, edit the site uh, and 
what I guess I what I could have done is like I could have built a. I mean, some of the options available to me, I could have made like a custom application, like a custom you know Rails application to with like a really light CMS to let people edit it. Uh, I could have made it in WordPress. I could have you know there's a lot of places where I could have gone in a different direction with it, but then I wouldn't have been able to make the site in one night, right? Like that was a, a key thing of that site existing was that we were able to like open up a beer and leave with a website. Mm. Um, so small CMS is this tool I kind of came up with after being frustrated with that problem for a long time where uh, basically uh, um, uh, it's, it's super simple. Uh, you just write a website in HTML and CSS. Any place you want content to exist and be editable by a contributor, you just drop in uh, some curly brackets with the name of a variable. You upload the site to your server and then a little script on the server will recognize that there's an HTML page that's been uploaded. It will pull out all of those uh, curly brackets with names and it will generate a CMS like a custom CMS page just for that HTML page that you can then you know link to your your collaborators or your client and you can be you can say here log into this page and edit and the edits will just be pushed live to the HTML site so there's there's like a you know this is also like a solved problem in some senses there's a, a million you know light CMSs that do things like this but um, a lot of them have have too much cruft for my taste or they're hosted or they have really creepy pricing screen as, as schemes or other things that sort of turn me off from using them or some of them require me to learn new stuff like you know there's some good options out there that where you need to like learn you know YAML or Liquid or some proprietary you know, uh, uh, writing a, a you know markup language or something, and it just it all defeats the purpose for me of being able to like sit down in one night and and write a website and have it done at the end of the night. So my last question that I have for you today um, is to sort of to tie everything together. You are so busy, clearly you must be, and and you have a lot of things going on. So it's kind of like a two a two prong question. Do you feel like you have to be busy? And are you addicted to the feeling of launching something? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, yes to both questions. Um, you know, I, something I, I talked about on, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, from, from working on political campaigns, um, you know, what I, I liked on political campaigns, this idea of like it, the purposefulness of it. So it's like, you know, you wake up in the morning and every decision you make during the day is subsumed under this goal of like getting this guy elected. So, right, you're, you're working on the Obama campaign, you really believe on it. You wake up and it's like, you got to make breakfast. And you're like, what breakfast am I going to eat that's going to help me do my job so that I can get this guy elected to president? You know, like literally every, every decision in your life is sort of you look at it through this filter and then the campaign ends if you're lucky you win and then the next day you wake up and you're like well I have to figure out how to what do I eat for breakfast and and uh, you know I, I no longer like have that same framework to make that decision with um, so I, I ever you know I, I don't know maybe this is just like a, a being being young thing or, or being easily distractible thing but uh, you know I I, uh, I don't like not not having something to help me make those decisions and and figure out what I want to do with my life. Like I, I like having a lot of projects going on, and I, I like being able to wake up and know what my what my day is going to be for and and uh, what I'm going to do with my time. So uh, for me, I just like to keep a lot of uh, projects up in the air. And and it also uh, it was a um, also partially comes from some advice I got from a, a philosophy professor of, of mine who sort of taught me this idea of like procrastinating. Um, uh, 
strategically. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm one of the like laziest and most distractible people that I know. Um, and that the trick for me to just keep being able to do good work is like, I, I have to make sure that when I get bored of what I'm working on, I have something else I can go work on. That's like fun to work on, but still productive. Um, so it helps me to have a lot of projects going on simultaneously, uh, because I can always procrastinate on one project by going to another one. And and sometimes also I find by like having a lot of things going on at once, like you you find interesting connections between them. You find interesting opportunities to for, for improvement or collaboration between them. And uh um you know sometimes you learn something working on one project that helps you with uh with everything else. Something that I think you might find interesting if you've never heard of this. Have you ever heard of the term marginal gains? I have not. So the the British uh, cycling team, Team GB, um, in recent years has been extremely successful and it has generated two Tour de France winners um, and is our most successful Olympian of all time, so Chris Hoy, and just many, many, many gold medals at the Olympics. And the, the guy at the head of uh, both the Olympic cycling team and Team Sky, which is the Tour de France team. His name is Dave Brailsford, um, and he spoke. Of some, he speaks about a thing called marginal gains, where everybody that is involved with Team GB believes that what they are doing wins the gold medal, and that every single thing that they do is a marginal gain. So, like for example, they take so. Chris Hoy, one of the, uh, our cyclists, will take his pillow that he has at home with him when he travels. That is a marginal gain. It's a tiny thing that adds up to the overall big picture of him winning. So every little thing that, that they do, so like um, the guy who brings the coffee for Dave Brailsford in the morning, he, that is a marginal gain because that is helping him prepare for the rest of his day. And it was just when you mentioned about the breakfast thing, you you having breakfast, it, it was a marginal gain towards Obama becoming president because without the breakfast you had in the morning, you wouldn't have been able to, to do X, Y, and Z. Man, I, I like that so much. And, you know, the other, the, the thing that immediately makes me think of is, you know, occasionally there, we would have on the on the Obama campaign these, like, uh, all staff calls with uh, David Plouffe or, or someone else would be high up in the campaign. And they would talk about not only, like, the, the, those little marginal gains that we could all do to contribute to uh, a win or, or a great campaign, but also, like, the things that people wouldn't do. So, like, this idea of, like, they, they never wanted the public to, you know, towards the end of that campaign, Things were looking very good, right? Like we, like McCain was was damaged, and uh, polls were looking up, and and uh, we were in a very strong position. And people, obviously, we we were watching the race really closely, and we knew it. And every day they would tell us, like, if the public gets even a whiff of the campaign feeling cocky or the you know of of us feeling like we're entitled, they will punish us for it. So there was this sense of like all the little things we could do to the proactively that would add up but also the things that we wouldn't do you know that we would that we would conduct ourselves uh you know that we in, in a certain way that we wouldn't brag or or boast or anything like that that those were marginal gains as well that's that 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 was such an important part of the uh ethic of the campaign it's difficult to find like there isn't really um a resource for this idea but i've put a some couple of links in the show notes to some articles which uh one uh, it's an interview and one is just a, an editorial about, about marginal gains. It's an interesting thing. Unfortunately, the business world has, has taken it now. 
Um, and now in big corporations in the UK, everyone talks about marginal gains. Um, but that's kind of what happens to these types of things. But uh, such is life. Well, Mr. Temkin, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I'm going to have to have you back one day to talk about the rest of the stuff that you do. Um, <laughs> it would be, be my pleasure. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a listener of the show, and it's, it's uh, super fun for me to be on. And uh, thanks for doing such an awesome podcast. It's, it's really been a, a great resource for me. It's very kind of you to say. Please uh, tell our listeners where they can go uh, to keep up with everything that you do. Uh, well, I just bought a marginalga.in, so I'll, uh, I'll, do some, <laughs> I'll do something funny with that. Um, but uh, you can, uh, I guess you can find me on uh, Twitter or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> what is your name on Twitter? Who are you on Twitter? Uh, uh, Max Temkin. M-A-X-T-E-M-K-I-N. Excellent stuff. I guess that's probably a good, a good launch place. Or marginalga.in. <laughs> will be in the next in the next place <laughs> i'm surprised somebody doesn't already own it um some some business guy in the uk somewhere um if you want to catch up with the show notes for this episode go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 71 there'll be a bunch of links in there to stuff that we've spoken about today if you'd like to follow me on twitter you can do so too i am imike i-m-y-k-e i would appreciate that so come along Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space, uh, and I'll be back next week for another episode of the show. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.